Chapter six, part three of Principia Ethica. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Frederick Carlson. Principia Ethica by G. E. Moore. One hundred and twenty-two. Two. It will be remembered that I began this survey of great unmixed goods by dividing all the greatest goods we know into the two classes of aesthetic enjoyments on the one hand and the pleasures of human intercourse or of personal affection on the other. I postponed the consideration of the latter on the ground that they presented additional complications in what this additional complication consists will now be evident, and I have already been obliged to take count of it in discussing the contribution to value made by true belief. It consists in the fact that in the case of personal affection the object itself is not merely beautiful while possessed of little or no intrinsic value, but is itself, in part at least, of great intrinsic value all the constituents which we have found to be necessary to the most valuable aesthetic enjoyments namely appropriate emotion cognition of truly beautiful qualities and true belief are equally necessary here but here we have the additional fact that the object must be not only truly beautiful but also truly good in a high degree it is evident that this additional complication only occurs in so far as there is included in the object of personal affection some of the mental qualities of the person towards whom the affection is felt, and I think it may be admitted that, wherever the affection is most valuable, the appreciation of mental qualities must form a large part of it, and that the presence of this part makes the whole far more valuable than it could have been without it but it seems very doubtful whether this appreciation by itself can possess as much value as the whole in which it is combined with an appreciation of the appropriate corporeal expression of the mental qualities in question it is certain that in all actual cases of valuable affection the bodily expressions of character whether by looks by words or by actions do form a part of the object towards which the affection is felt and that the fact of their inclusion appears to heighten the value of the whole state it is indeed very difficult to imagine what the cognition of mental qualities alone accompanied by any corporeal expression would be like and in so far as we succeed in making this abstraction the whole considered certainly appears to have less value i therefore conclude that the importance of an admiration of admirable mental qualities lies chiefly in the immense superiority of the whole in which it forms a part to one in which it is absent and not in any high degree of intrinsic value which it possesses by itself it even appears to be doubtful whether in itself it possesses so much value as the appreciation of mere corporeal beauty undoubtedly does possess that is to say whether the appreciation of what has intrinsic value is so valuable as the appreciation of what is merely beautiful but further if we consider the nature of admirable mental qualities by themselves it appears that a proper appreciation of them involves a reference to purely material beauty in yet another way admirable mental qualities do if our previous conclusions are correct consist very largely in an emotional contemplation of beautiful objects and hence the appreciation of them will consist essentially in the contemplation of such contemplation it is true that the most valuable appreciation of persons appear to be that which consists in the appreciation of their appreciation of other persons 
but even here a reference to material beauty appears to be involved both in respect of the fact that what is appreciated in the last instance may be the contemplation of what is merely beautiful and in respect of the fact that the most valuable appreciation of a person appears to include an appreciation of this corporeal expression though therefore we may admit that the appreciation of a person's attitude towards other persons or to take one instance the love of love is far the most valuable good we know and far more valuable than the mere love of beauty yet we can only admit this if the first be understood to include the latter in various degrees of directness with regard to the question what are the mental qualities of which the cognition is essential to the value of human intercourse it is plain that they include in the first place all those varieties of aesthetic appreciation which formed our first class of goods they include therefore a great variety of different emotions each of which is appropriate to some different kind of beauty but we must now add to these the whole range of emotions which are appropriate to persons which are different from those which are appropriate to mere corporeal beauty it must also be remembered that just as these emotions have little value in themselves and as the state of mind in which they exist may have its value greatly heightened or may entirely lose it and become positively evil in a great degree according as the cognitions accompanying the emotions are appropriate or inappropriate so too the appreciation of these emotions though it may have some value in itself may yet form part of a whole which has far greater value or no value at all according as it is or is not accompanied by a perception of the appropriateness of the emotions to their objects it is obvious therefore that the study of what is valuable in human intercourse is a study of immense complexity and that there may be much human intercourse which has little or no value or is positively bad yet here too as with the question what is beautiful there seems no reason to doubt that a reflective judgment will in the main decide correctly both as to what are positive goods and even to any great differences in value between these goods in particular it may be remarked that the emotions of which the contemplation is essential to the greatest values and which are also themselves appropriately excited by such contemplation appear to be those which are commonly most highly prized under the name of affection one hundred and twenty three i have now completed my examination into the nature of those great positive goods which do not appear to include among their constituents anything positively evil or ugly though they include much which is in itself indifferent and i wish to point out certain conclusions which appear to follow with regard to the nature of the summum bonum or that state of things which would be the most perfect we can conceive those idealistic philosophers whose views agree most closely with those here advocated in that they deny pleasure to be the sole good and regard what is completely good as having some complexity have usually represented a purely spiritual state of existence as the ideal regarding matter as essentially imperfect if not positively evil they have concluded that the total absence of all material properties is necessary to a state of perfection now according to what has been said this view would be correct so far as it asserts that any great good must be mental and so far as it asserts that a purely material existence by itself can have little or no value 
the superiority of the spiritual over the material has in a sense been amply vindicated but it does not follow from this superiority that a perfect state of things must be one from which all material properties are rigidly excluded on the contrary if our conclusions are correct it would seem to be the case that a state of things in which they are included must be vastly better than any conceivable state in which they were absent in order to see that this is so the chief thing necessary to be considered is exactly what it is which we declare to be good when we declare that the appreciation of beauty in art and nature is so that this appreciation is good the philosophers in question do not for the most part deny but if we admit it then we should remember butler's maxim that everything is what it is and not another thing i have tried to show and i think it is too evident to be disputed that such appreciation is an organic unity a complex whole and that in its most undoubted instances part of what is included in this whole is a cognition of material qualities and particularly of a vast variety of what are called secondary qualities if then it is this whole which we know to be good and not another thing then we know that material qualities even though they be perfectly worthless in themselves are yet essential constituents of what is far from worthless what we know to be valuable is the apprehension of just these qualities and not of any others and if we propose to subtract them from it then what we have left is not that which we know to have value but something else and it must be noticed that this conclusion holds even if my contention that a true belief in the existence of these qualities adds to the value of the whole in which it is concluded be disputed we should then indeed be entitled to assert that the existence of a material world was wholly immaterial to perfection but the fact that what we knew to be good was a cognition of material qualities though purely imaginary would still remain it must then be admitted on pain of self-contradiction on pain of holding that things are not what they are but something else that a world from which material qualities were wholly banished would be a world which lacked many if not all of those things which we know most certainly to be great goods that it might nevertheless be a far better world than one which retained these goods i have already admitted but in order to show that any such world would be thus better it would be necessary to show that the retention of these things though good in themselves impaired in a more than equal degree the value of some whole to which they might belong and the task of showing this has certainly never been attempted until it be performed we are entitled to assert that material qualities are a necessary constituent of the ideal that though something utterly unknown might be better than any world containing them or any other good we know yet we have no reason to suppose that anything whatever would be better than a state of things in which they were included to deny and exclude matter is to deny and exclude the best we know that a thing may retain its value while losing some of its qualities is utterly untrue all that is true is that the changed thing may have more value than or as much value as that of which the qualities have been lost what i contend is that nothing which we know to be good 
and which contains no material qualities has such great value that we can declare it by itself to be superior to the value which would be performed by the addition to it of an appreciation of material qualities that a purely spiritual good may be the best of single things i am not much concerned to dispute although in which has been said with regard to the nature of personal affection i have given reason for doubting it but that by adding to it some appreciation of material qualities which though perhaps inferior by itself is certainly a great positive good we should obtain a greater sum of value which no corresponding decrease in the value of the whole as a whole could counterbalance this i maintain we have certainly no reason to doubt one hundred and twenty four in order to complete this discussion of the main principles involved in the determination of intrinsic value the chief remaining topics necessary to be treated appear to be two the first of these is the nature of great intrinsic evils including what i may call mixed evils that is to say those evil holes which nevertheless contain as essential elements something positively good or beautiful and the second is the nature of what i may similarly call mixed goods that is to say those holes which though intrinsically good as holes nevertheless contain as essential elements something positively evil or ugly it will greatly facilitate this discussion if i may be understood throughout to use the terms beautiful and ugly not necessarily with reference to things of the kind which most naturally occur to us as instances of what is beautiful and ugly but in accordance with my proposed definition of beauty thus i shall use the word beautiful to denote that of which the admiring contemplation is good in itself and ugly to denote that of which the admiring contemplation is evil in itself one with regard then to great positive evils i think it is evident that if we take all due precautions to discover precisely what those things are of which if they existed absolutely by themselves we should judge the existence to be a great evil we shall find most of them to be organic unities of exactly the same nature as those which are the greatest positive goods that is to say they are cognitions of some object accompanied by some emotion just as neither a cognition nor an emotion by itself appeared capable of being greatly good so with one exception neither a cognition nor an emotion by itself appears capable of being greatly evil and just as a whole formed of both even without the addition of one other element appeared undoubtedly capable of being a great good so such a whole by itself appears capable of being a great evil with regard to the third element which was discussed as capable of adding greatly to the value of a good namely true belief it will appear that it has different relations towards different kinds of evils in some cases the addition of true belief to a positive evil seems to constitute a far worse evil but in other cases it is not apparent that it makes any difference the greatest positive evils may be divided in the following three classes one hundred and twenty five one 
the first class consists of those evils which seems always to include an enjoyment or admiring contemplation of things which are themselves either evil or ugly that is to say these evils are characterized by the fact that they include precisely the same emotion which is also essential to the greatest unmixed goods from which they are differentiated by the fact that this emotion is directed towards an inappropriate object in so far as this emotion is either a slight good in itself or a slightly beautiful object these evils would therefore be cases of what i have called mixed evils but as i have already said it seems very doubtful whether an emotion completely isolated from its object has either value or beauty it certainly has not much of either it is however important to observe that the very same emotions which are often loosely talked of as the greatest or the only goods may be essential constituents of the very worst wholes that according to the nature of the cognition which accompanies them they may be conditions either of the greatest good or of the greatest evil in order to illustrate the nature of evils of this class i may take two instances cruelty and lasciviousness that these are great intrinsic evils we may i think easily assure ourselves by imagining the state of a man whose mind is solely occupied by either of these passions in their worst form if we then consider what judgment we should pass upon a universe which consisted solely of minds thus occupied without the smallest hope that there would ever exist in its smallest consciousness of any object other than those proper to these passions or any feeling directed to any such object i think we cannot avoid the conclusion that the existence of such a universe would be a far worse evil than the existence of none at all but if this be so it follows that these two vicious states are not only as is commonly admitted bad as means but also bad in themselves and that they involve in their nature that complication of elements which i have called a love of what is evil or ugly is i think no less plain with regard to the pleasures of lust the nature of the cognition by the presence of which they are to be defined is somewhat difficult to analyze but it appears to include both cognitions of organic sensations and perceptions of states of the body of which the enjoyment is certainly an evil in itself so far as these are concerned lasciviousness would then include in its essence an admiring contemplation of what is ugly but certainly one of its commonest ingredients in its worst forms is enjoyment of the same state of mind in other people and in this case it would therefore also include a love of what is evil with regard to cruelty it is easy to see an enjoyment of pain in other people as essential to it and as we shall see when we come to consider pain this is certainly a love of evil while in so far as it also includes a delight in the bodily signs of agony it would also comprehend a love of what is ugly in both cases it should be observed the evil of the state is heightened not only by an increase in the evil or ugliness of the object but also by an increase in the enjoyment it might be objected in the case of cruelty that our disapproval of it even in the isolated case supposed where no considerations of its badness as a means could influence us may yet be really directed to the pain of the persons 
which it takes delight in contemplating. This objection may be met, in the first place, by the remark that it entirely fails to explain the judgment which yet, I think, no one on reflection will be able to avoid making, that even though the amount of pain contemplated be the same, yet the greater the delight in its contemplation, the worse the state of things. But it may also, I think, be met by notice of a fact which we were unable to urge in considering the similar possibility with regard to goods, namely the possibility that the reason why we attribute greater value to a worthy affection for a real person is that we take into account the additional good consisting in the existence of that person. We may, I think, urge, in the case of cruelty, that its intrinsic odiousness is equally great whether the pain contemplated really exists or is purely imaginary. I, at least, am unable to distinguish that, in this case, the presence of true belief makes any difference to the intrinsic value of the whole considered, although it undoubtedly may make a great difference to its value as a means, and so also with regard to other evils of this class. I am unable to see that a true belief in the existence of their objects makes any difference in the degree of their positive demerits. On the other hand, the presence of another class of beliefs seems to make a considerable difference. When we enjoy what is evil or ugly, in spite of our knowledge that it is so, the state of things seems considerable worse than if we made no judgment at all as to the object's value. And the same seems also, strangely enough, to be the case when we make a false judgment of a value. When we admire what is ugly or evil, believing that it is beautiful and good, this belief seems also to enhance the intrinsic vileness of our condition. It must, of course, be understood that, in both of these cases, the judgment in question is merely what I have called a judgment of taste. That is to say, it is concerned with the worth of the qualities actually cognized and not with the worth of object to which those qualities may be rightly or wrongly attributed. Finally, it should be mentioned that evils of this class, beside that emotional element, namely enjoyment and admiration which they share with great unmixed goods, appear always also to include some specific emotion, which does not enter in the same way into the constitution of any good. The presence of this specific emotion seems certainly to enhance the badness of the whole, though it is not plain that, by itself, it would be either evil or ugly. 126. 2. The second class of great evils are undoubtedly mixed evils, but I treat them next because, in a certain respect, they appear to be the converse of the class last considered. Just as it is essential to this last class that they should include an emotion appropriate to the cognition of what is good or beautiful, but directed to an inappropriate object, so to this second class it is essential that they should include a cognition of what is good or beautiful, but accompanied by an inappropriate emotion. In short, just as the last class may be described as cases of the love of what is evil or ugly, so this class may be described as cases of the hatred of what is good or beautiful. With regard to these evils it should be remarked, first, that the vices of hatred, envy, and contempt, where these vices are evil in themselves, appear to be instances of them, 
and that they are frequently accompanied by evils of the first class, for example, where a delight is felt in the pain of a good person. Where they are thus accompanied, the whole thus formed is undoubtedly worse than if either existed singly. And secondly, that in their case a true belief in the existence of the good or beautiful object, which is hated, does appear to enhance the badness of the whole in which it is present. Undoubtedly also, as in our first class, the presence of a true belief as to the value of the objects contemplated increases the evil. But, contrary to what was the case in our first class, a false judgment of value appears to lessen it. 127. 3. The third class of great positive evils appear to be the class of pains. With regard to these, it should first be remarked that, as in the case of pleasure, it is not pain itself, but only the consciousness of pain, towards which our judgments of value are directed. Just in chapter 3, it was said that pleasure, however intense, which no one felt, would be no good at all. So it appears that pain, however intense, of which there was no consciousness, would be no evil at all. It is therefore only the consciousness of intense pain which can be maintained to be a great evil. But that this, by itself, may be a great evil, I cannot avoid thinking. The case of pain thus seems to differ from that of pleasure. For the mere consciousness of pleasure, however intense, does not, by itself, appear to be a great good, even if it has some slight intrinsic value. In short, pain, if we understand by this expression the consciousness of pain, appears to be a far worse evil than pleasure is a good. But if this be so, then pain must be admitted to be an exception from the rule which seems to hold both of all other great evils and of all great goods, namely that they are all organic unities to which both a cognition of an object and an emotion directed towards that object are essential. In the case of pain, and on pain alone, it seems to be true that a mere cognition by itself may be a great evil. It is, indeed, an organic unity, since it involves both the cognition and the object, neither of which, by themselves, has either merit or demerit. But it is a less complex organic unity than any other great evil and than any great good both in respect of the fact that it does not involve, beside the cognition, an emotion directed towards its object, and also in respect of the fact that the object may here be absolutely simple, whereas in most, if not all, other cases the object itself is highly complex. This want of analogy between the relation of pain to intrinsic evil and of pleasure to intrinsic good seems also to be exhibited in a second respect. Not only is it the case that consciousness of intense pain is, by itself, a great evil, whereas consciousness of intense pleasure is, by itself, no great good, but also the converse difference appears to hold of the contribution which they make to the value of the whole, when they are combined respectively with another great evil or with a greater good. That is to say, the presence of pleasure, though not in proportion to its intensity, does appear to enhance the value of a whole in which it is combined with any of the great unmixed goods which we have considered. It might even be maintained that it is only goods in which some pleasures is included that possess any great value. 
it is certain at all events that the presence of pleasure makes a contribution to the value of good holes greatly in excess of its own intrinsic value on the contrary if a feeling of pain be combined with any of the evil states of mind which we have been considering the difference which its presence makes to the value of the whole as a whole seems to be rather for the better than the worse in any case the only additional evil which it produces is that which it by itself intrinsically constitutes thus whereas pain is in itself a great evil but makes no addition to the badness of the whole in which it is combined with some other bad thing except that which consists in its own intrinsic badness pleasure conversely is not in itself a great good but does make a great addition to the goodness of a whole in which it is combined with a good thing quite apart from its own intrinsic value 128 but finally it must be insisted that pleasure and pain are completely analogous in this that we cannot assume either that the presence of pleasure always makes a state of things better on the whole or that the presence of pain always makes it worse this is the truth which is most liable to be overlooked with regard to them and it is because this is true that the common theory that pleasure is the only good and pain the only evil has its grossest consequences in misjudgments of value not only is the pleasantness of a state not in proportion to its intrinsic worth it may even add positively to its vileness we do not think the successful hatred of a villain the less vile and odious because it takes the keenest delight in it nor is there the least need in logic why we should think so apart from an unintelligent prejudice in favour of pleasure in fact it seems to be the case that wherever pleasure is added to an evil state of either of our first two classes the whole thus formed is always worse than if no pleasure had been there and similarly with regard to pain if pain be added to an evil state of either of our first two classes the whole thus formed is always better as a whole than if no pain had been there though there if the pain be too intense since that is a great evil the state may not be better on the whole it is in this way that the theory of vindicative punishment may be vindicated the infliction of pain on a person whose state of mind is bad may if the pain be not too intense create a state of things that is better on the whole than if the evil state of mind had existed unpunished whether such a state of things can ever constitute a positive good is another question end of chapter six part three